Tonight, straight from the source, a major breakthrough as the first Americans and other foreigners are able to finally evacuate war-torn Gaza. Plus, a second strike on the largest refugee camp there for the second day in a row. We'll ask a top Israeli official why the IDF hit the same area again. And here at home, Donald Trump Jr. on the witness stand at his family's fraud trial. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Moments ago, President Biden called for a pause in Gaza to allow for the release of more hostages. This after he was interrupted by a protester, a rabbi, at a closed-door fundraiser in Minneapolis tonight. But his administration has been clear, saying that they rule out the idea of endorsing a ceasefire, as you've seen some in the international community call for one. We'll have more on President Biden's response in a moment. But all of this is coming after the first evacuations of people from Gaza. More than two million people have been trapped. The conditions there have been described as nothing short of hellish. Deaths continuing to climb. There is little food or water to be found. A small number of Americans were among the hundreds that were allowed to leave through that Rafah crossing into Egypt today. President Biden says that's a result of intense diplomacy and that the White House is working, quote, nonstop to get more Americans out. Most civilians have remained trapped, though, as Israeli ground forces have been moving in and airstrikes over Gaza have continued. That same refugee camp that you heard about yesterday, the Jabalia camp that was hit, was hit again today, 24 hours after a large number of civilians there were killed, in addition, according to the IDF, to a top Hamas commander. This is the before and after of that area. You can see the devastation that has happened. Israel claims that it struck a Hamas command and control complex and reiterates that they have been warning civilians to leave this area. This is what the IDF said about hitting that camp again. You're referring to a second strike. You, I, I think a more correct uh, depiction of it would be that there's ongoing fighting. We are fighting an enemy that is embedded in each and every house. There's tunnels everywhere, and it's an active combat zone. This is a Hamas stronghold. It's not a refugee camp. It is a Hamas stronghold. More on what Israel is doing in a moment. Wolf Blitzer is live on the ground in Tel Aviv. And Wolf, I understand that there is a lot of activity, some explosions that we are seeing happening in Gaza right now. What can you tell us? Well, you can see uh, the skyline over Gaza right there. This is from our camera. Uh, that's not far from Gaza in Sderot. And you can see the lights going on. Uh, clearly, the Israelis are not pausing in their continuing uh, airstrikes against what they describe as major Hamas sites, uh, not only uh, in elsewhere in Gaza, but including in those refugee camps, uh, especially that major, the largest refugee camp where there have been two major Israeli airstrikes over the past two days alone. The Israelis are not going to pause. They're not going to accept a ceasefire. They, they see this, as the prime minister said, a war that potentially could lead to Israel's extinction. And they're going to just try to do the best they can to destroy Hamas. And they're going in full speed ahead. Yeah, Wolf. And I mean, you pressed the IDF on this yesterday, the idea that, yes, they say that Hamas commanders are there, that this is this command and control center. We can hear what's happening in Gaza, just to let our viewers know that's what they're looking at. This is exactly what is happening at this moment. It is 3 a.m. there in Gaza, and you can hear the activity. What's clear, Wolf, is despite the growing criticism of the civilians that are being caught in the middle of this, I mean, Israel does not appear to be slowing its activity in Gaza at all. 
No, they're, they're not slowing it down at all. They're going to be moving uh, quickly on the ground and from the air and maybe even from the sea. Uh, they've got a mission and they're, they're determined to try to succeed and to eliminate Hamas as a potential threat down the road to Israel uh, as a result of what happened on October 7th. Uh, they're, moving, they're moving quickly and they're not going to accept either a ceasefire or even a so-called pause. They see that basically as the same thing. They want to get the job done. They want to get it done as quickly as possible. If you speak to Israeli officials, as I have, they're making that abundantly clear. Yeah, and Wolf, I just want to pause for a moment and let everyone see what is happening in Gaza and just listen to what we're hearing right now. And Wolf, I mean, this is coming as what we're seeing, you know, not just these airstrikes happening tonight, but also What's, what's shifting here is we heard from a senior Israeli official today in the military saying these forces are on the ground. They are approaching. They're at the gates of Gaza City, he said. They're moving quickly on the ground. Uh, this is a, a major Israeli military operation. Remember, Caitlin, the Israelis in the days immediately after October 7th, the terror attack uh, in Israel, not far from Gaza, uh, the Israeli military mobilized more than 300,000 reservists. Uh, and they're now active duty. They're on the ground over there. Some are already inside Gaza, but many of them are waiting to move inside. So this is a full-scale military operation that they're engaged in, and they see this as uh, part of their effort to destroy Hamas and to protect Israel from any future attacks that are similar to the one that occurred on October 7th. So they're not going to stop. Yeah, Wolf Blitzer on the ground in Tel Aviv. We'll continue to check back in with you as there are updates. With me here in studio, Axios reporter Barack Ravid, who is deeply sourced in the Middle East. I mean, and what we're seeing in Gaza happening right now, I mean, it's 3 a.m. there. This is kind of what's been happening every night. There is no pause happening right now. And I think it's notable given what President Biden said tonight at this closed-door fundraiser. He was being shouted down from a rabbi calling for a ceasefire. He talked about a pause, but, I mean, it's not totally clear if that will happen, what it'll look like. Yeah, I think... Uh, there's a, we need to differentiate between a ceasefire, that this is basically, you know, something which is pretty long, at least a few days, uh, that might lead to a, to a total cessation of hostilities. This is not in the cards, okay? When Biden speaks about a pause, he speaks about something that Israel is actually already doing on the ground without saying it. For example, today, when the ambulances came in and took 80 uh, wounded Palestinians to Egypt, and every day when the trucks are coming in, there is an unofficial pause that Israel stops a lot of its military operations in southern Gaza to allow that to happen. But what Biden is talking about, I think what the White House is trying to achieve is at least several hour pause in the entire Gaza Strip that will create some sort of conditions that will A, allow the departure of Americans from Gaza, because a lot of them are still scattered around the Gaza Strip. Hundreds. And may, I think it's all close to a thousand people. Um, and also create a sort of atmosphere that might allow some sort of a release of hostages. I'm not sure if that's possible, but that's what the White House is looking for. And so when he says, quote, and this is Biden tonight, I'm the guy that convinced Bibi, his nickname, to call for a ceasefire, to let the prisoners out. I'm the guy that talked to Sisi, the Egyptian president, to convince him to open the door. 
he you think that's what he's referencing? I think that. so. You know, it's you know, I, I read the transcript of this, and it it seems to me like Biden talking off the cuff, and you he know, never so, does that. He never. <laughs> uh, so you know, I. I wouldn't take like every word, for example, he uses the word prisoners when they're not the word hostages or, or things like that. So again, I think again, what the White House is trying to achieve is a period of six hours, eight hours. That's um, a long enough period of time, again, to get Americans out, not only Americans, also foreign nationals. We saw a first tranche of this happening today. You can't get all those people out if you don't have a few hours of a pause. And what we're seeing happening on the ground as far as Israel is clearly continuing to hit Gaza tonight, we're looking at these live pictures right now. The Israeli commander saying our our forces are at the gates of Gaza City. That is where we're expecting it to be, that real urban warfare that we've heard so many Israeli experts and former officials there say it's going to be ugly. It's going to be brutal. They've already lost 16 IDF soldiers. I mean, how much more do you think they're bracing for? Uh, So I think what we still don't see is exactly that. The ground operation, we see some pictures, some very short videos, but on the ground right now in Gaza, both in northern Gaza Strip and in the center of Gaza Strip, so from both sides, both from the north and the south, there are three armored infantry divisions of the IDF. That's more than 30,000 soldiers. So they're surrounding it. They're surrounding it. It's hundreds of tanks, uh, armored personal vehicles. This is a huge thing. We still don't see it because the Israelis are keeping it ambiguous for all sorts of reasons. But they are very close. As the commander said, that they're at the the gates of Gaza City. They are going to, I think, either tomorrow, the next day, to start getting into Gaza City. And this is where things get really difficult because this is a densely urban area. And then any, uh, from every house, from every corner, there can be uh, anti-tank missiles. There could be IEDs. This is very, very dangerous. And do you think they are fully, they're ready for, I mean, they won't call it a ground invasion. Not yet. Not yet. You but think I they think, will eventually? I think eventually. I mean, I, I think at a certain point, you know, when you see something and you see it's a ground invasion, it doesn't matter if you call it an invasion, if you don't call it an invasion. It's And this is not something that will take, like, they're not there for a few hours. They're not there for two or three days. This is going to be a long thing. Barack Ravid, uh, great reporting. We'll continue to bring that here on The Source. Thank you, thank thank you for that. Of course, the Rafa crossing that I mentioned is a spot. It's an eight-mile fence. On one side, it's millions of people who are trapped in Gaza tonight. On the other side is Egypt's Sinai Desert. It is now the only way in for food, for water, for supplies. It's the only way out for people who do have another passport to get them to another country. And I'm joined now by a senior advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the former Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom, Mark Regev. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for being here. Is Israel committed to making sure that the Rafah crossing stays open so these these crossings can continue? We are indeed, and we're hopeful that we'll see more people uh, be leaving in the coming days. Uh, obviously, we're talking first and foremost about the nat- nationals with uh, two passports. Uh, sorry. The dual nationals who have a foreign passport and, of course, uh, now that the Egyptians have established a field hospital on the rougher side, uh, on the Egyptian side of the rougher crossing, we're hopeful that people who need that, that hospital attention, need health care, can go there too. We're hopeful that other countries will be augmenting the Egyptians and we'll see further field hospitals there on the Egyptian side of the crossing.
And our understanding was that Americans, in large part, I know there are a few people who got through today, doctors, will be crossing on Thursday. Can you explain why that is? And is that your understanding as well, that Americans, most of them out of Gaza, will be allowed to leave on Thursday? From our point of view, this should have been done uh, weeks ago, at the very beginning of the conflict. I remember this issue was first raised by Secretary Blinken when he was here on his first visit, and that was just a few days after the conflict had started. Uh, so from our point of view, this was something that we wanted to happen a while ago. It took us a while to get make this happen, primarily because Hamas caused a lot of problems, only because of pressure on Hamas. I think have they agreed now to, to for the exit of the, the people with the foreign passports? Uh, well, Israel, of course, was part of those negotiations as well. There were some concerns over when uh, Israeli airstrikes and where they were hitting. But I do want to ask you, because the IDF confirmed today that the Jabalia refugee camp has been hit for a second time, of course, that comes after yesterday. The IDF said a strike there killed a Hamas commander, but we also know it, it killed civilians as well. Why did Israel strike again here? And do you know how many civilians have been killed in this area as a result of these strikes yesterday and today? So we know we've taken out a senior Hamas commander who was directly involved in the massacre of October 7th. Uh, as you will recall, there were rapes, there were beheadings, there were people burnt alive. Uh, burned so badly, we uh, until today we've got 130 bodies that we can't uh, recognize who they are. They're, they're just ashes. Uh, and uh, anyone who was involved, especially a commander of the operation, we have a duty to find them and to bring them to justice. And we have meted out very, very speedy justice with this, this individual. But to the question of why did Israel strike a second time today, and do you have a, an estimate of how many civilians were killed as a result of these strikes yesterday and today? So I can't tell you, I know that we've hit senior Hamas commanders and we've hit many Hamas uh, terrorists. That's our goal. In the Jabalia camp, subterranean, your pictures are only showing what's above ground for obvious reasons. But underneath there, you have a spiderweb of, uh, of tunnels, uh, uh, of bunkers, of uh, uh, fortifications, an underground city which Hamas has built over the years, of course, stealing the cement and the electricity and so forth from the people of Gaza. And in building those fortifications, that's an integral part of their military machine. And we are about to destroy that military machine. If we need to attack it again, we'll attack it again. Okay, but you're not acknowledging how many, I assume Israel does have an estimate of how many civilians were killed. I assume you have an estimate of how many civilians are there when you make a calculus on when to strike. Tell me if that's wrong. But when you decide on striking targets that you say are military targets, but are also where civilians are, I mean, how many civilian deaths does Israel believe are acceptable in an airstrike if it is a military target? So obviously we try to keep any collateral damage to a minimum, as minimum as possible. And the advantage of this particular location is that it has been largely, not totally, but largely evacuated because we were telling people there two weeks ago longer that they should evacuate that area, that there will be fighting. And that whole area around Gaza City, including the refugee camp, uh, about 800,000 people have moved to the south as we requested and more so in the, uh, in the last few days as the ground operation started. And so we think there, of course, are civilians still in the area. We're making a, a great effort to, to distinguish between them and Hamas. But the good news is that the, the huge civilian population that used to be there ha has vacated. But do you know how many were killed? I can't tell you exactly because I don't know. What uh, about an uh, estimate? Of course, the, the numbers that come out from the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health are, are of course, 
uh, uh, high, but we don't believe them. So and what number do you believe, If you look at those statistics, we've never hit a single uh, terrorist. Uh, we only hit civilians. That's, of course, obviously mendacious. You don't believe their number. I obviously understand why it's controlled by Hamas that's putting out these figures. But what number? I haven't heard a number from, from Israel. What number? We, do we don't have it. We can't give you a precise number. And I, I don't want to give a number ir- irresponsibly. I can say the following. Most of the civilians left that location before we struck. I'm not denying there are a few there. But we've hit a primary Hamas target. We've taken out a Hamas leader. We've taken out many, many Hamas fighters. Uh, that was the goal of our operation. And, and, and casualties, if there were civilian casualties, surely that has to be based on Hamas because the, the Geneva Convention is clear. Uh, if, if, if a combatant turns a civilian area into a war zone, in other words, if he's placed his military machine inside a civilian neighborhood, he has, in fact, endangered the civilians because according to the Geneva Convention, uh, the, the, the additional protocol... Uh, Article 13. I understand. By doing so, he's made it a legitimate target. Now, even though we have a legal right to do so under the laws of war to attack a legitimate Hamas target, we still made an effort, told all the civilians, please vacate the the location. And I'm happy to tell you that the overwhelming majority of of Gaza civilians in that location have, in fact, left. The number of civilians left there is small. We don't want to hurt them. I will say, Ambassador, a lot of them feel like they don't have places to go, certainly not safe places. But as far as what Israel is doing on the ground in Gaza, the military said earlier today that Israeli ground forces, they have advanced to the gates of Gaza City. Are Israeli forces inside Gaza City right now? I can't answer that question. We're not giving those sort of operational details out publicly for obvious reasons, because Hamas is watching also CNN and they want any information they can about where our forces are and what operations are upcoming. We won't get that sort of information out, other than to say uh, we are committed to the mission. We will destroy Hamas's military machine. We'll do everything we can to get our hostages out, and we will push this through to its end. And the end is an end of Hamas rule in Gaza and the destruction of the Hamas military machine. We will not allow, Caitlin, we simply will not allow again the sort of massacre that they perpetrated against us on October 7th. Never again. And we'll prevent that from happening by destroying their capacity, their capability to inflict that sort of massacre upon our people. It's very clear that Israeli, I mean, your own military is saying that they are on the ground there. We've seen them going in into Gaza in this second phase of this campaign. Can you explain why Israel is hesitant or just is is not is refusing to call it a ground invasion? Well, we've obviously got ground forces uh, inside the Gaza Strip. I think what we call it is immaterial. Uh, If you want to call it an invasion, you can call it what you want. But we are there on the ground to take on Hamas, to defeat Hamas, to end the rule of Hamas in Gaza. And ultimately, our objective is, of course, good for Israel because we're going to free the people of southern Israel from this constant threat of this this ISIS-type terrorist organization. But at the same time, I ultimately believe that it's good for the people of Gaza too, who deserve better. For 16 years, Hamas has ruled Gaza, and what have they bought for the people of Gaza? Uh, Only suffering, pain, and impoverishment. Uh, The people of Gaza deserve better, surely. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. One of the Americans who was lucky to make it out of Gaza today, a Seattle doctor, a volunteer who is making prosthetics for children in Gaza, is safe tonight. Her nephew is here with me next. 
Also today here in New York, Donald Trump Jr. was on the stand in the fraud trial that is threatening his father's business empire. What prosecutors wanted to know from him and what he told them, that's also ahead. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, two American doctors who were stranded in Gaza have safely been evacuated into Egypt One of them is 71-year-old Dr. Ramona Okumura, who left Gaza through the Rafah border crossing early this morning. She's a retired pediatric orthopedic specialist from Seattle. She's been making prosthetics for children and teaching others how to make them for the last seven years as a volunteer. Her nephew shared with us her last text that she sent just as she was arriving into Egypt. It reads, quote, love to everyone who helps me get out. Pray for the people of Gaza who now don't have us as shields from harm. Good night. And her nephew, Nicholas Payne, joins me now. Nick, I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, it must be such a relief to know that that she's safe, that she's coming home, and that she was able to make it out. Yeah, uh, thank you. First, thank you for having me. And I mean, there's just this weight lifted off of me. This weight has been lifted off from the entire family that every single day we've just been on bated breath waiting for her next text message to make sure that she's fine and to know that she's finally through the border and on to a safer uh, place in Cairo now uh, is just incredibly relieving. Yeah, and the last you heard from her was when she was on that shuttle bus? Uh, Shuttle bus, and then we know that she arrived uh, at a hotel in Cairo. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the contact has been so limited. Comms in Gaza have been disrupted. They're, we believe, disrupted tonight, disrupted several times. What was she kind of describing what she was seeing to you and your family? I mean, I think what really struck us the most was that uh, at times she was she would do these audio messages where she would just hold up her phone and then we would just hear bombs uh, going off, uh, whether Hamas rockets or Israeli military uh, missiles. And just hearing it and then having her explain that these were rattling the window shades, uh, it was just very terrifying. And that's on top of them having limited food, limited water, and just a lot of disease illnesses going around. And she's a a doctor. She's there to help people. I know she volunteered in Gaza a lot. She got a little disrupted because of the pandemic, but obviously you want her to be safe. But I imagine it's probably difficult for her to leave given she was working with children in Gaza and what we're seeing happen to those children now. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have any children, but in a sense, she has thousands of children. I mean, I have, you know, in a past life, I've gotten to go with her to piano recitals uh, for children that she's made prosthetics for. And that's just the type of medical specialist that she is. She doesn't want to just make a limb for a child. She wants to uh, to be part of their lives, to do what she can to help them go to school, run, play, and just be kids. Because, I mean, whether that's a kid in Seattle or a kid in Gaza, that's a kid that just wants to you know, grow up and be happy. 
She sounds like such a special person. We're glad that she's safe and, and glad that you came to join us. So keep us updated when you do hear more from her. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Dr. Ramona Okamura, we're wishing the best for her. Of course, up next, we'll get more on the ground in Gaza, what's happening there. Also tonight, the Trump family begins taking the stand at the civil fraud trial that could ultimately derail the Trump organization. First up was Donald Trump Jr., what he told prosecutors, and which of his siblings will be in that seat next. Donald Trump Jr. on the witness stand in court today in the $250 million civil fraud trial that is threatening the very existence of his father's empire. Donald Trump Jr. was pressed by prosecutors on the scope of his involvement in the company's financial statements. He's not done testifying yet, but he also is not expected to be the last of his family members to take the stand. Joining me tonight, CNN legal analyst Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who is also the former chief assistant district attorney here in Manhattan. And I'm so glad you're here because, I mean, this is just day one. We just got like a little bit of Donald Trump Jr. and what this looks like. He denied having involvement in, in these financial statements, but he did acknowledge that that he had had conversations with the others at the company that could have played a role into that. How does that work? You know, is that is that suitable for for what the judge is hearing, what others in the court are hearing? Well, first of all, the judge has to decide whether they whether he credits what Don Jr. is saying. I mean, don't forget, this is a man who went to Wharton Business School, one of the best business schools. He was the president of the company. And so either he is not qualified to run and be an officer of a large institution that deals with properties and money, et cetera, or he might not be telling the truth, according to the judge, depending on what they decide. But it seems a little strange that he, everyone's kind of saying, it's not me, it's him, it's not me, it's him, it's not me, it's him. And with Don Jr. in particular, I think just given his educational background and, and his level at the company, uh, I think it's, it's a little bit straining to think that he wasn't more involved. So when he says, you know, uh, accounting at 101 in the 90s was kind of his, like, grasp of experience with that, do you think that's something that they see as credible? I don't think these are complex financial uh, financial considerations that are going on here. These are pretty simple concepts, right? These are things like, how big is the apartment? Is it 30,000 square feet or is it 10,000 square feet? Are you taking into consideration the fact that there are rent-controlled apartments or are they all at full market value apartments? I mean, just common sense things that I think are things that he would know, everybody yeah. knows, everybody can understand that. So again, either the lights were on in nobody's home or he's not telling the truth. It just makes no sense. Well, and he's not the only of the former president's kids to be testifying. I mean, he's back on the stand tomorrow. His brother, Eric Trump, is also going to be there. Ivanka Trump, is supposed to be there, but she's scheduling, uh, filing an appeal to try to get out of her testimony. I mean, what is looking at all of their testimony and Donald Trump himself's testimony, how does that all figure into what the result of this looks like? I think at a certain point, if everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else, but the buck doesn't stop anywhere, I think that's going to be one of the things that the judge, who's the fact finder here, because there's no jury, right? This is a, a bench mm -hmm. trial. I think that could be one of the things he decides to look at and say, does this make sense? I mean, don't forget, this is a very successful business operation. Donald Trump tells us every day how successful he has been in business. You don't get that way without having some level of competence, I don't think. So I, I just think it'll be interesting to see who can finally 
take responsibility for this. Somebody has to, right? Somebody made up these numbers, made up these figures, and valued things a certain way. And, and I think it'll be interesting to see who the judge credits to determine who that will be. And do you think Ivanka will win her appeal, or what's your sense of that? It's really interesting. I actually read the minutes from the hearing, and a lot of it's very technical, saying, look, I, you didn't serve me properly, I don't live in New York, etc. But on the other hand, what they're saying is, no, you had relevant testimony. You have businesses in New York. And so if there's relevant testimony to be had, and the judge finds that, I think she'll be testifying. But they did give her a chance to appeal it, which is why her testimony isn't scheduled until next Wednesday. Yeah, we'll see what uh, ultimately happens there. Donald Trump Jr. will be back on the stand at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Karen, I know you'll be watching it closely with the rest of us, so thank you. Thank you. And of course, tonight we're also following big news on Capitol Hill. Two more Republicans there have just called it quits from Congress, including one who is going to be here tonight who is not mincing words about his party on the way out. Congressman Ken Buck is next. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. The House of Representatives is back in Washington tonight with big problems to address on the agenda, keeping the government open, as well as helping Israel and Ukraine fight a pair of brutal wars. All of that, though, is immediately sidetracked by a slew of resolutions to punish other members of Congress. We watched that play out on Capitol Hill today. My next guest, though, is Republican Congressman Ken Buck, who made his own news by announcing that he has had enough and is not running for re-election. Congressman, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, tell me what is driving your decision here. Well, really two things, Caitlin. One, uh, I have been here nine years and Congress refuses to deal with the big issues that we need to deal with. We have not addressed the sustainability of Social Security and Medicare. We haven't addressed the uh, huge spending issue that we have. Uh, by the end of next year, we will have $36 trillion of debt and, and that also is just unsustainable. And so we need to, we really need to work on issues. Uh, there's no incentive structure here to do that. And then in addition to that, Republicans who have answers to these issues and are uh, you know, at least uh, aware of them and, and hopefully will work on them someday, have a huge credibility problem because we continue to talk about and lie about the, the 2020 election as if it was stolen, as if it, Joe Biden wasn't the, the real winner of that election. We keep lying about January 6th and, and the prisoners from January 6th, the, the defendants um, who are not political prisoners, but, but rather uh, committed crimes. They assaulted police officers. They uh, damaged government property. And so I, I don't think we can have the credibility we need with the American public if we continue the lies uh, that we're now telling. When you hear those members of your own party that you're talking about in the hallways behind you who you know, try to claim the election was stolen or talk about political prisoners, those who from January 6th, did they say the same things privately or are, are most of them, do you believe, saying one thing publicly and another thing privately? I, I think there's a little bit of both there. I, I think some of them in the back of their minds know, you know, Joe Biden won this election, but I voted to decertify, so now I need to figure this out. I, I think there's a little bit of that. Are you worried about what 
as you know, and your critics on Capitol Hill as well, you are often a lone voice or maybe one of very few who will criticize your own party and, and their priorities or lack of, as you say. Are you worried about what the Republican Party on Capitol Hill looks like without a Congressman Ken Buck in it? No, I think there's a lot of uh, young, new congressmen that, that are here that will uh, take up uh, that, that position. And, and I, I honestly believe that um, as we get through this election cycle, the Republican Party is going to start to look different. Um, and and I, I hope uh, that we have moved beyond uh, the influences that, that are on the party right now that talk about, uh, you know, January 6th as an unguided tour of the, of the Capitol. Um, I, I think that those things are are in the past, uh, hopefully in the past, and uh, we'll see what the, the new Republican Party, the new Republican Party to me, uh, Caitlin, looks a lot like the old Republican Party, the Ronald Reagan uh, Republican Party, the party that believed in the rule of law, the party that uh, believes in a strong national defense. When you say you think it'll look different after the election, do you mean because either Republicans lose their House majority or, or Donald Trump, if he's the nominee, loses? What do you mean? Well, I, I don't think Donald Trump will be our next president, and I don't think that, uh, that the Republicans in the House will be bound uh, to his uh, ideology and, and to his uh, priorities. And, and I think that will uh, free up a lot of people uh, to, to really get back to the roots of the Republican Party. Senator Mitt Romney said something kind of similar when he announced that he was not going to run for re-election. He said he thought right-wing populism would fail We've heard that from other hopeful Republicans for the last several years, including when I covered the White House. What happens to your party if it doesn't, if those who are aligned so closely with Donald Trump and election denialism and whatnot succeed? I'm not sure if you're saying if Donald Trump becomes the next president of the United States, what happens? Sure. I mean, he's still, even if he doesn't, he's still the, the undeniable leader of your party at this time, is he not? I, I think he is uh, the leader of the party at this time. Um, I think if he does not win the presidency, then you'll see people moving on. If he does win the presidency, you're going to see another four years of, of much of the same, uh, of people denying that election. Um, I, I frankly think that some of his policies are stronger than President Biden's policies in terms of uh, how I see the world. But, but I think uh, integrity matters. And I think the American public uh, really is going to demand integrity of the next president. Do you think Republicans can hold on to their House majority if their priorities are as they are right now, which you say, you know, aren't aligned with what your kind of Republicans believe they should be? You know, I, I think the House and the Senate are both at play. Um, I, I think uh, in the House, we've had some redistricting in different states, and, and I think that's going to play a factor. I think uh, who the nominee is next year is going to play a factor. So I, I think there are a lot of things that, that are in play right now. We have two major conflicts going on in the world. Uh, we also have inflation. We have other issues that are going to be driving people uh, with pocketbook issues to the polls. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how they vote. Congressman Ken Buck, who announced he is not running for re-election today. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Meanwhile, President Biden in Minnesota tonight addressing the suffering of Palestinian civilians in a state with a sizable Muslim population amid criticism about his response to what's happening in Gaza and another election around the corner, what it could mean for that, that's next. Tonight, new remarks from one of the most outspoken progressive Democrats on Capitol Hill on the Israeli airstrike, the second one on the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza today. This is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
saying that she believes it is a war crime, and she is urging President Biden to push Israel to honor human rights laws. I believe bombing a refugee camp is, is, a, uh, is a human rights violation. I believe it's a war crime. All of this is coming as President Biden is facing more pressure to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, something that the White House has not done. The president has not explicitly said that. He did tell a protester, a rabbi, who was at a fundraiser with him tonight in Minneapolis, and I'm quoting what President Biden told this protester this. This is according to reporters who were in the room. I think we need a pause. A pause means give time to get the prisoners out, obviously referring to the hostages there. But that statement is unlikely to quell the outrage that we are hearing from many Muslim Americans who have threatened to withhold their support from Biden's re-election. In fact, some Muslim leaders have announced today that they are done with Biden. We have already abandoned Biden. Our message is very clear. No ceasefire, no vote in 2024. We are not only not voting for him, but we will campaigning against him to lose the election 2024. Muslim Americans overwhelmingly backed Biden's run for the White House in 2020. Losing their support could mean a lot. He won Minnesota by single-digit percentages. Same with several swing states that also have sizable Muslim populations. For more on this tonight and the impact it could have, here now is Wael Al-Zayat, the CEO of Engage, the largest U.S. group, I should note, focused on turning out Muslim American voters. And Wael, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. I, I want to talk about just overall this big picture of what this means. But on President Biden's comments tonight that he supports a pause, but as his administration has said no to a ceasefire, what did you make of that? Thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, I think uh, clearly the White House and the president is seeing and hearing the calls for a ceasefire, which are so much needed given the mounting death toll in Gaza, especially among children. Over 3,400 have been, have been killed. And so therefore, the White House recognizes that this is really not sustainable. And I think you're starting to see now the president, perhaps others, start voicing uh, statements in that regards. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken recently also supported a humanitarian pause, which the administration was not supportive a few weeks ago. So I think you're seeing that public pressure uh, working, but it may take some time for them to fully embrace the reality that is needed, which is an absolute ceasefire in Gaza. Would you be okay if there was just a humanitarian pause and not a full-on ceasefire, or do you believe that could turn into a ceasefire? You know, at, at the end of the day, people may call it different things. What's important, if there's a cessation of hostilities that are suspending the bombing of civilians, of buildings, of homes, of schools, of hospitals, and killing children, right? If that can happen, I really don't care what you call it, as long as it happens, and UN agencies, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, said that the bombing of Jabalia, which has killed perhaps as many as 400 civilians, may be considered war crimes. Uh, this is serious matter, particularly because these are U.S. weapons at play here. I'm a former U.S. official. I worked at the State Department for 10 years. I worked on the counter-ISIS campaign. I worked on the Syria conflict. And really what we're seeing right now are actions that perhaps Vladimir Putin in Ukraine or Assad in Syria would do, and not an ally of the United States, and certainly should not be conducted with U.S. material and diplomatic support. I mean, that's, I just want to note, given the comment that you just made, you were at the White House, that they had a meeting with Muslim American leaders uh, in recent days. I mean, given what you just said, and 
the gravity that you believe of what has happened here. Did you get a sense from your view that you believe President Biden understood that? So it really, we went into the White House with heavy hearts. The community is devastated. It is being targeted, attacked here in the U.S. Anyone who is daring to mention Palestinian rights is being doxxed, is being intimidated on campuses. We had a young Palestinian boy murdered in Illinois, a Palestinian-American boy, six years old. And we went in there with a heavy heart, with a clear message to the president, respectfully, the American Muslim community, the Arab community, and in fact, 80% of Democrats are supporting a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, 56 percent of Republicans, according to recent polling, we said, "Look, the American public does not need escalation in the Middle East. We don't. We do not need another war in the Middle East. We need a ceasefire to allow for civilians to be treated, to be attended to, and also, really, what we need is a more sustainable solution to this conflict. There is no political answer. There is no military solution to this conflict. Only a political one." As you know, obviously, President Biden is, is running for re-election. You heard others saying if there is no ceasefire, they're not going to vote for him. If the race was tomorrow, it looks like he'd be running against former President Trump, who obviously has called for a Muslim ban. Are you worried that if the Muslim American community doesn't support President Biden, sits on the sideline, that it could help elect someone who, who wants to have a Muslim ban in place? I'm worried about a lot of things right now, including that possibility. Of course, Donald Trump was horrible not just to the Muslim community. He was horrible to America and American democracy, which is why in 2020, 85% of Muslim Americans, according to Engage's data, voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We're proud of that decision because it was the right decision at that moment. But what we're seeing right now is not just greatly disappointing, but outright horrifying that the administration that we helped turn out the vote for is refusing to call for a ceasefire. Now, we understand fully well who Bibi Netanyahu is and that Bibi Netanyahu, who is leading the most far-right government in Israeli history, may not listen to the U.S., but at least we got to tell him and we got to, in a way, stand for the values that this administration has campaigned on. So I am concerned, but right now the community is in great pain. They really don't want to think about the elections despite some promises. I think they fully understand what's at stake, and our organization will ensure that the Muslim community and allies do vote, which is very important. The question is for whom and why, and that remains to be determined. Hmm. Ah, it's very important perspective, and I'm, I'm really glad that you joined me to share that with us tonight. So thank, thank you, you so all much. for being here. Thank you. Ahead, indicted Republican Congressman George Santos has just survived a push from within his own party to push him out of Congress. It's more complicated than that, though, and it doesn't mean that it's over. We'll explain what happened today next. House Republicans voting to spare embattled Republican congressman and serial liar George Santos. A Republican-led resolution failed to expel him from Congress tonight. Of course, he is facing 23 federal charges, including wire fraud and identity theft. He has pleaded not guilty, I should note, but that's what led to what you saw happening on the House floor today. Santos is still facing a House ethics investigation. They have promised an update coming in the next two weeks or so, and House Republicans are waiting to see what happens there. We'll keep you updated. Thank you so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.